Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, David Bellis of the popular Hong Kong history website, grulo.com, talks to me about ferry routes, a 19th century punishment for criminals, a war diary and the childhood memories of Barbara Anslow of the 1920s. But first, I'm off to see antiquarian dealer Jonathan Wattis of Wattis Fine Art to learn about Murdoch Bruce, who used convict labour in Hong Kong to build Hollywood Road and was also a fine artist. In 1844, Governor Davis comes in replaces Pottinger and he's involved with building the early roads. So um, Pottinger Street was the first one, and, and when Davis came in, one of the next ones to be built was Hollywood, which was named after his estate. His estate in Gloucestershire was called Hollywood. So Hollywood Road, otherwise we'd have Davis Road. So we, I'm, I could be on Davis Road. I've been here for 32 years, but I'm on Hollywood Road. But it's interesting because the person involved with building the roads was called Murdoch Bruce and he was an architect and engineer and he was the overseer of the road building and he built it with labour taken out of the prison next door. So I suggest that he might have been in this area quite a lot, taking his, his gang out to build the roads around here. But he also was involved with building roads in other parts. So I acquired, or we, my wife and I acquired, this really, really rare um, early uh, lithograph of Spring Garden which is Wan Chai Waterfront at that time, because at that time Spring Garden went in parallel with the, the water. Um, now I think it's, it goes perpendicular or something. It's, it's a, down by Wan Chai Market, Spring Garden Lane, the remnants of it. But if you look at over here, this is something we've just acquired. And this is Spring Garden, and this was in 1846. And this was done by Murdoch Bruce, who did a series of 12 drawings of parts of Hong Kong and they are among the earliest records of Hong Kong being developed and I've never had this one before and it's rather interesting because when you look at it and you read behind it you discover that the second building on the right was Government House and that uh, Governor Bonham lived in it from 1848 onwards. Beautiful. So he's down in what would be modern day Wan Chai? It's modern day Wan Chai. So it would be the, you know, where, where near to where Spring Garden is, sort of down Queen's Road, but it's the waterfront. So here you've got the waterfront and people coming off boats, rather well-dressed people and ladies in, in Victorian attire, but we can only guess at this because there's a certain amount of artistic license, but this may be possibly the governor and his party alighting to go into one of these houses in 1846. And what would you call this? It's a lithograph, is it? This is a lithograph. So it's in very fine detail, and if you look underneath it, it says M. Bruce architect Dell, which means delineated, which means he drew it and then he sent the drawing to London where it says on stone by A. McClure so what he did was he, he drew it in reverse on a lithographic stone and then it was printed from that lithographic stone. So there was this company of printmakers, they were in London doing this one but they were also in Edinburgh and Liverpool, they were called McClure, MacDonald and McGregor so what happens is Bruce sent a series of these drawings to England. They were made into these beautiful lithographs by leading lithographers of their day, among the best lithographers working in London at the time, and they were sold either in Hong Kong or in London. But they were, the subscription came out and they were advertised each month for 12 months. So there were 12 of them done, and they were sold by 1847. The set was complete. And they're among the earliest record, and they're absolutely charming and rare as hen's teeth. So that's Spring Garden, which, as you said, was rare as hen teeth, <laughs> and I will be looking that up. 
Look at those sails. Those sails are magnificent. I've got I've got two sail ships to show you. One with the, the sails up, which is this one here, and one with the sails down, which is beautifully painted. So this is an American bark, and I love the way they spell bark, B-A-R-K. That's like a dog bark, uh, but bark is more often B-A-R-Q-U-E. But this is the Bark Alcyon leaving Hong Kong, F.E. Patterson Commander. Basically, it's a ship's portrait. Well, it's a bark, but it looks, I mean, other people might say clipper, but that's about the size of the ship and the sails and sort of thing. But this has got all these sails up and a lot of flags, so it's very pretty and it's very nicely done. So the story behind a ship painting like this, which is fully at sail with Hong Kong Harbour all around and Hong Kong Island behind, so, and, and you can see the central area or Victoria and various different types of boats, junks, and there's even steamboats behind this ship. So the detail is, is very good and, a, and an American flag at the back of it, of the ship. But the thing about it is that's so, so interesting is that it was probably painted in the Queen's Road. The way the artists, the Chinese artists who had studios in the Queen's Road operated, uh, they either tried to contact a senior officer um, when he was coming on shore or I imagine they might have even come up beside the boat and sort of said do you want your ship painted or somebody would go into their studio in the Queen's Road and then somebody would go out and make notes and then take it back to the studio and then this this ship portrait would be produced so there were a number of artists working at this time in the 1860s in the Queen's Road and they, they first set up in the 1840s and so it was the artists of the day who were painting souvenirs for the people who could afford it or for the ship owner or the ship captain and I think there were various qualities you could get. You could get a ship without Hong Kong just at sea <laughs> or you could get a ship partially with Hong Kong or you get a ship with the full Hong Kong at different prices. Yes, it's got all the sails up uh, you can see all the rigging going up. Gosh, you'd need a head for height. And right at the top, there's some various other naval or uh, maritime insignia, rather. Tell me, what's the difference between a bark and a clipper, then? I'm not very good at this, <laughs> but it's, it's basically the, the size of the boat and right. the number of sails. The clipper would have been much faster, but it is coming to the age of the clipper. I mean, I think the clipper comes in really late 1860s, 1870s, and they had the, uh, the clipper races, and the clipper mm. clippers would pick up tea, and they would race from Hong Kong to London or from Fuzhou to London. But you uh, would imagine with the wind, this would go. I mean, look at it, you know, in terms of the number of sails there. I and mean, we're looking at masts that have five sails on them going up. And that's doubled up. Then you've got uh, almost like I'm not a sailor, so excuse yes. my terms. But you've got yes. almost like parallel sails coming to those triangular sails. But looking at this ship, so this would what would have its trading route have been? I've I've done a little bit of research, and I, I've got it in Melbourne, uh -huh. so I know it's in Melbourne. I think it was built in Maine or New Hampshire, so that's where it would be going back to on the east coast of the uh, USA. So yeah, between the US and Hong Kong and then another time to Australia. This is from which year? Well, it's probably between 1865 and 1870. So it would so. have been tea, carrying tea? Yeah, it may have been carrying tea. Trade goods to the US, so tea, porcelain. A bit uh, of silver? Yeah, a bit of silver, uh, silk. I imagine what they could make money on in the China trade and they, they were the main main things, weren't they, I think, yeah. 
It's amazing, actually, when you think about um, people who go up to the Canton Trade Fair in, in subsequent years and everything like that. Nothing's changed in terms of, all right, okay, well, we've bought this in, what can we take back? Um, and, uh, and at that time, yeah, you had to also think on your feet on what would appeal uh, back home, you know, in terms of what there was unavailable. But silk would have been, yeah, massive. And, silk um, would have been massive, yes. Yeah. And uh, tea to New England probably, but also, I mean, to, to England would have been, yes. But this is an, uh, an American bark. But uh, we do have uh, one that I, another one that we just acquired. I'm going to tell you about where these came from. So there was an American collector who was in Los Angeles, and he had one of the largest maritime collections and unfortunately passed away a few a couple of years ago and his collection uh, has been coming up for auction and this is where I acquired this but he had an, an immense range of things the collection was called the Kelton collection and he had an immense range from Gauguin oil paintings to, to maritime all around the world but included China trade so I bought this in a China trade sale where there were some very nice uh, paintings that relate to this part of the world and trade between Hong Kong and the US has been a very strong link over the years let me show you one more thing, just because you brought it up. <laughs> so here is a British ship, and it may be it may be a Jardine one. It seems to have a blue saltire. Is that, is that, is that a Scottish flag uh, at the top? And this is a ship drying its sails ah. in the Canton River. And it was used and displayed. It also came from the Kelton Collection, but it went into a maritime show on climate. And it was to show when everything was completely still, and, and this is about as still as you can get it. The sea is still, it's like a mill pond, and, and the sails are there, and it's just, there's no, no wind in the rigging. I think they're just pulled like that to dry. They're drying the sails in the Canton River. Uh, but I particularly like this painting because it's by one of my favorite China trade Chinese artists called Nam Chong, who was in Wampo and then set up a studio in Queen's Road. So this is a new acquisition, latest one by Nam Chong that I bought, and I think it's beautifully painted. I love the way the sky is done. I love the way the sails are painted. It's, it's actually painted extremely well. And it's interesting, as you say, that Nam Chong was named. What was the rhyme or reason? Was it a case of the ones who actually ran the gallery or were senior bods in the gallery got named? Because so many I see, and it just says, you know, Chinese artist or, uh, you know, and, they, and I always feel sorry that such skill, such talent is now relegated to historic anonymity. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's part of the, uh, the quest that I have is trying to identify and like so many of the, the the painters I mean there were a lot of mediocre painters who didn't paint very well but the, and so they would you probably pay one price to them but the better painters you paid more however over the period of time over the time you know the a lot of the labels have got lost or one thing or another but uh, with people like Nam Chong you can identify because of the way he painted the sky the pinks and, and the gradation of the sky, the pinks to the blues, um, and also an element in the sea. So he's very distinctive, so you can find out. And then sometimes you get labels, but very, very, very rarely signed. Once in the blue moon, very hard to find signed paintings. So attributing is, is, is tricky unless you've got either provenance, a label, a signature, or a particular style you can identify. So this is in the Canton River. And is he sort of, again, is that artistic license with the three-masted ship that's behind yeah i think i think it's a formula so you've got a, a like a three-masted trading a european trading ship there it looks like another british ship actually because you can see the red flag at the back on one side and then to the other side you've got a 
a Chinese trading junk, which is beautifully depicted, with again with the sails down. Each of them have the sails down, so it's so completely still. Where did Nam Chung have his studio? Uh, but his original studio was in Wampoa, which uh, was up the river. I think it's about 12 miles short of Canton, but that's the, uh, that was the deep water port, the main port for China trade. So all the ships would uh, head there and uh, they would moor and everything would be unloaded and then taken on smaller craft up to Canton. And then they would be loaded up and off they would sail again. So Wampo was the most important dock, probably on the China coast, but certainly in uh, South China. In the early days, in, in the uh, late 18th century and the early 19th century, you were told that you had to pick up a pilot in Macau in order to go up further up the river to, to Wampo. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, yes, because I, I often, you know, living opposite the Lama Strait, I often see the pilot ships come in to um, escort in and out of Victoria Harbour. But yes, you would have had, with these ships coming in, they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have really known the Canton River either, would they? Mostly, yeah. I mean, the East India Company, which was really up until the 1830s and then token until the 1860s, but it was, there were probably captains there who came in, in a number of times so they'd be more familiar with it but the, the trading ships that came out of say the US or England yeah I mean they, they may know one or two captains and uh, may, may know their way but yeah most of them coming in probably benefit although maybe depending on the quality of the pilot it may have been better to get him drunk <laughs> well it's interesting that, um, that you can as you say that you can identify Nam Chung by, by his skies. The pink element, does that mean that it's been taken at sunrise or sunset? I think he's created it. Yeah. I think this is, again, he's an artist, you know. This, this, it's this kind is, of signature in a way. Yeah, it's before photography, it's before colour photography, but uh, I mean, I go out uh, every day through the harbour and I see the different sun, sunsets and uh, there really are some special sunsets uh, if you're heading sort of northwest out of Hong Kong in the evening and he creates that it makes the painting attractive but also it's the quality of the painting of the ship and the painting of the sails I mean you look at the painting of these sails and they're really that's a very good hand so that's a British clipper drying sails in the Pearl River near Wampoa oil on canvas from around 1850 by Nam Chang my thanks to Jonathan Wattis of Wattis Fine Art and now on to David Bellis of Gwulo.com, as well as his website, David, also provides a newsletter and in it to help keep people who've been confined by COVID-19 entertained, David has also been going back over the years to see what people were interested in. So in this segment, we go to 2013 for some of the top 10 different items that readers were interested in. Yes, yeah, the idea was while everyone's stuck at home, uh, maybe a little bit extra reading material would go down well. And then how to do that without spending days and days creating it. So I thought, oh, well, we've got over 10 years of material now. So how about I go back a year at a time and just see what were the top 10 posts year by year? Have you found that while people have been stuck in lockdown that uh, your material with your tens of thousands of pages has increased? It has. It's, uh, it's quite a struggle to keep up at the moment. Yes. Oh, well, I look forward to all that fresh materials. And of course, you can easily find a lot of this information on the Grulo History website. So just take a look. I'm just looking through your top 10 from 2013. And one of the items there is the old Hong Kong telephone numbering system. 
That's right. We had a couple of people write in who used to work for Hong Kong Telephone. So they were explaining some of the little tricks and quirks they had. So somebody wrote in remembering that if you worked for Hong Kong Telephone, you could get a number starting with an eight, for example. And people thought, oh, that must be because it was a lucky number. And the man said, no, no, actually, the thing was it bypassed the, uh, the payment mechanism. So if you worked for Hong Kong Telephone, you could get a, a number and you'd be able to dial home without paying. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so that's sort of secrets of the job. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, over the years, I mean, I still travel every day by ferry. Um, I, in fact, my ferry firm is over 50 years old. But uh, of course, over the years, depending on what other transport was available, the ferry routes have changed, haven't they? They have, that's right. And so many have, have disappeared. If you look at the old maps, they just crisscross from everywhere to everywhere, going back and forth across the harbour. And of course, as the tunnels have opened and the MTR, the, the number of people taking those ferries has dropped and dropped. There's um, a ferry goes from not far far away from where I live. It goes from the Kowloon City Pier across to North Point, and we started taking that. It's, uh, if you're going for a hike on Hong Kong Island, it's just a very peaceful start, but it's not busy, so I don't know how much longer that will keep going for either. Oh, well, I might try that one then. So that's from Kowloon over to, to North Point. That's a route I haven't done. But uh, over the years, as you say, you've, so you've got these sort of old ferry route maps. Uh, one is uh, from the 1950s. And of course, prior to the Harbour Tunnel being built in the early 1970s, you would have had to take your car over by ferry. Yes, we've got the, one of the pictures there as well of the vehicular ferry pier. Those there are still a few left of, and they have to keep them just because of the dangerous goods. Some of the dangerous goods, I think, aren't allowed to go through the tunnels, so they, they keep a few of those ferries running still. Oh, that makes me feel better about going through the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> I really must, I haven't done it, but I really must do a programme with an engineer about, I've always been fascinated by how these uh, tunnels are built, how you disperse all the earth, make sure the water doesn't come in. I think it's uh, fascinating, you know, yes. here. Yes, <laughs> I like tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you if you have um, some engineers on your feed, sir, then then do pass them my way. But uh, also, um, tell me about how do you pronounce it? The kangoo, the kang. That's a good question. We've never had to say it out loud. <laughs> it's the word which shall not be spoken. C a n g u e. Kang, I suppose. And it's a punishment commonly used in mainland China. Uh, and uh, when you uh, look at old photographs, you can see it's almost like a square piece of wood where somebody's head's been put through it. And what was the, how, how did that punishment work? Was it just the humiliation of it or was it quite a painful thing to wear? Well, it was uncomfortable and I think your hands couldn't reach your mouth. So you couldn't feed yourself, you couldn't drink, you couldn't do anything. You know, by yourself, you were completely at the mercy of whoever was looking after you. And they'd also post details of your crimes on the boards. So there was a, an extra humiliation to it as well. So the question about these, this was when I was working on the Central Key Station project a few years ago. We were trying to find out if they'd been used in Hong Kong or not. And it seems they were just for a few years, like 1840s. And then they switched to leg stocks instead. But they'd work in the same way. So if you'd committed a crime let's say, on Lindhurst Terrace, then you'd be sentenced to be exposed in the stocks at the point where the crime took place. And again, you'd have a little board in front of you, you know, telling everyone just exactly how you'd been a naughty boy and what you'd done. And you'd have to sit out there for the day with your, your feet in the stocks. 
I'm chatting with David Bellis of Gruulo.com. Do take a, a look and it's a fantastic rabbit hole if you've uh, got a few hours to spare or even just five minutes of all sorts of different areas of both uh, very quirky research some of the time and also some very serious research um, when you actually look that, uh, you know, lots of historians are working on, lots of people who are amateur historians who are researching their families or other history aspects of Hong Kong and there's tens of thousands of pages waiting for you to have a look through. Um, David, if, if you've got newcomers to Gulo.com, you can also sign up and get a, a newsletter. Yes, for sure. That's the best way to stay in touch. If they come to the website, in the top left corner, there's a little link called Free Newsletter. Click that, type your email in, and then about once a week, you'll, or twice a week at the moment, you'll get uh, a newsletter from us. Now, if you've got your own research, that can also go on to Gulo.com, can't it? Or if you've got any questions... Yes, we welcome posts from, from anyone, uh, pictures, questions, information, you know, if you've got longer studies, uh, old family memoirs, all that. It's all great stuff and it all links in with the other parts of the website. Now, on the top tens that you've done annually, you had uh, also at number seven in 2013, you had Daniel Richard Francis Caldwell, who lived from 1816 to 1875 was quite a character and uh, that had 12,574 views on Grulo.com and uh, well that would be 75 now because I've looked at it. Now Daniel Caldwell he was um, you know he's an interesting character because he seems to be fighting crime sometimes he's a bit of a mm, dodgy dodgy character in himself he reminds me of some of these expats who come here who are a, a tad colourful. <laughs> colourful yeah that's a good description for him yes. <laughs> So at some points he's he's being hailed as the hero because he's he's helping them track down the pirates because he he, has, he speaks Chinese his wife is Chinese and he has very close connections with the uh, Chinese community and he has a network of spies who are feeding them all this information and then other times he's being tried for using all that in in the wrong way and it's hard to tell from this distance exactly you know how much is is true of the people who are against him or were they just people who had a grudge against him and trying to to stir up trouble so the, the the page on the website here it's not really about his history funnily enough it's more about his family so i i do recommend anyone that's researching their family history and trying to find out about a family member and come and make a page for them on gulo and you just don't know who gets in touch so here's a page daniel richard francis caldwell a little bit about his history just a few lines but then we hear from uh, somebody who has a a robe that he wore, Gillian Wallace in, in Devon. And so she sent a picture of that. And then we hear of one of the descendants, and he had this enormous family. They reckon about 12 of his own children, and they adopted over 20 more. So the family tree is huge, and it's got sort of more Western side, and it's got more Chinese side. So some of the, the different family members start getting in touch through this thread. So that's the, the fun part of it, I think. Yes, you say here he's a father of two over... 30 children by birth and adoption so that's you know if they anyway if they have a reunion anytime they, they need a big pub don't they really <laughs> yes but, it's gonna be in the hundreds isn't it now? <laughs> but it's also for me very interesting because you think of these characters in history well i do as isolated people like daniel caldwell is as you say a fluent chinese speaker and he originates from saint helena and uh, also lives in penang and singapore before arriving in hong kong but it's odd for me to actually think that there's people living now who are 
related to him and why not you know as you say he's got this huge family now one thing that that uh, Gulo also has a lot of which is really good for research is uh, wartime diaries and these are often written by prisoners of war either military or civilian who were uh, particularly out of the Stanley internment camp there's a, a number of accounts that are very good now at number six in 2013 for the number of views you've got Tom Hutchinson's wartime diary and the difference with Mr. Hutchinson's diary is that it's written outside the camps. It's written from the perspective of a civilian trying to survive the, the Japanese military occupation. Yes, so that's, that's why it's such a valuable document for us, because the majority of people who write and, and speak English would have been either prisoners of wars or internees at Stanley. So a lot of the English diaries that we get cover that aspect of life. And of course, it's, it's an important and a, and a very fascinating period to be investigating, but it's only a tiny part of the story because you had the hundreds of thousands of people who were struggling to get by and in some ways not so safely hidden away, it sounds odd to say, but if you were in Stanley, you were kind of left to your own devices most of the time. Whereas if you were out on the streets in Hong Kong, you had to encounter um, Japanese troops and be very careful how you behaved. So this diary then of a a family and uh, you know, just documenting their life and uh, how they struggled to get through. Now, Tom Hutchinson, when I looked at uh, the photograph of him and his family, um, is he Eurasian? Yes, Eurasian. I think he'd only come to Hong Kong a little while before the war. I think he'd come here from, from Shanghai. I think that was the background. Ah, interesting. No, it's a wonderful collection um, that you've got here. And, of course, it's the 75th anniversary. It will be in August since uh, the end of the Second World War. Now, Barbara Anslow, of course, uh, recently passed away. She was more than 100 years old, and uh, she uh, wrote the book Tin Hats and Rice, which was her diary account of being in Stanley internment camp. And uh, she provides childhood memories of 1920s Hong Kong. Yes, it's a lovely read, really. She's best known for her wartime diaries, but here she is just talking about how it was to be a seven, eight, nine-year-old coming to Hong Kong, you know, such a strange place after growing up in Scotland, uh, coming here, struggling with the heat to start with, but then they fit in. Mum said if it was raining when it was time to leave school, I could hail a rickshaw, call up to the veranda of our flat when I arrived, when she would throw down the fare. One rainy day, when my hopes had been raised, then dashed because the rain suddenly stopped, I recklessly took a rickshaw and grandly gave a friend a lift home on the way. Even now, I can feel the apprehension with which I crawled out of the rickshaw and called up to Mum for the ten cents. I loved the feel of the white, tightly upholstered seats. Customers were shielded from rain or sun by a large collapsible green hood at the back, as on a pram, and by a green waterproof apron hooked on from one side of the hood to the other. I couldn't see over the apron without pulling it down a bit. When it rained, the rickshaw coolies with their conical rattan hats also wore yellow overcoats of palm leaves, making them look enormous. When the whole family was travelling by rickshaw, Dad had one to himself, Mum had Mabel on her lap, and Olive and I shared another. And there's uh, stories of making friends and changing schools and the games they played and, you know, the ice boxes. And there's a funny little story about her younger sister, who, who uh, a friend, Gabriel, 
had passed away and then at school was convincing, convinced that she'd seen the angel Gabriel and got into a heated argument with her teacher and all these funny little childhood memories of, uh, of life in Hong Kong. No, this is, uh, she's remembering life in 1927 to 1929 when she's aged seven to nine years old. I do always find these accounts quite incredible because I've got some highlights. You know, I can remember getting my first watch at age seven and feeling very adult. But, um, you know, can you remember your life? What's your childhood memory like? No, it's, it's very, uh, very patchy. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think the thing about Barbara is she wrote. She wrote and she wrote and she wrote. So in here, she's, she's quoting poems that she wrote when she was eight and nine. She also had this lovely record from her mother. Her mother wrote a book. It was like this. I think that's how it's, it's called. And um, it's her mother's memories. Obviously, she was that much older. So she's got all those descriptions of what life in Hong Kong was like to, to build on as well. My thanks to David Bellis of Grulo.com and Jonathan Wattis of Wattis Fine Art. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.